Brother Brandon is here as well. I won't point him out because his wife will give me a bad stare. My wife will critique my sermons. John can attest to that too. So I get in the car and I think I've done a good job in speaking and saying something. And my wife, I love her to death, she will sit there and maybe point out something I should have said differently or make sure I could have clarified something a little bit better. And giving my testimony, my story, the one that my wife is aware of, she is telling me what I need to say and how I need to say it. So I told her that I would record it so she can grade it when I'm done. So pray for me when I go back home and I play this message for her. She will once again probably tell me I should have said this. You probably didn't have to add that in there and all that. So, um, but no, I'm, I'm truly honored and blessed to be here and I appreciate you know people that have come in to hear my story. Many of you here, I guess I can safely say, probably have an idea of my story. Um, some of you have been a part of my story in the past, and many of you are a part of the, the story that God is writing in my life right now. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever shared my testimony publicly. I love to speak to people, evangelize to people. I always say I'm kind of a, a feet-under-table pastor to when I get to sit and talk to people. I love to explain to them my story and what God has done in my life. And guess what? What God is continuing to do in my life. Right? Our stories are always being written. And we have to remember that, and I think all of us here do remember that. Um, but in doing this publicly, it's awesome because my wife also said to me, don't give a sermon. And I just smiled. And I'm like, really? I mean, I had my Bible with me too, and she's like, you're taking your... I'm like, I'm taking my Bible with me because I'm going to infuse somewhat of a sermon into my testimony for you pastors in the room, Right? You really can't avoid it. It's just a thing you do, right? But I, I guess in starting off, and she, she prayed for me before I actually came in, and she's telling me kind of the things to include. I just want to start off in sections here of my life. I don't want to give you the exhaustive version because we would be here for a while, as many of you probably could say about your own stories. But I was, raised, I was born, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or born in Indianapolis, raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, two amazing parents, both have passed away. Um, I had four brothers and sisters. One brother has passed on. Um, I grew up in the city, was very, very thankful for that life. Um, I loved the diversity. I loved people. I did not grow up in the church. Um, I had no idea of what any of that meant. I think I had my own preconceived notions of what it meant to be a Christian. Basically that of maybe hypocrites and all that fun stuff. And some of you in here can probably attest and agree to that, right? Um, I was a thinker, though, as a kid. As, at a very young age, I would always sit there and try to figure things out. I would always apply logic to stuff. And I always believed that there was a God, I guess, like we were created, but I just didn't believe that he was a personal God. I always thought he was just kind of like watching us like fish in a fishbowl. So kind of this agnostic kind of mindset. Um, I questioned a lot of things because I had a lot of things going on in life even as a kid. That I always sat there and thought, you know, if there's this God, why would these things take place and happen? Um, that a, once again, my, my older brother passed away of cystic fibrosis at the age of 25. I remember growing up with him being mortified of death, like could not reconcile death whatsoever. And once again, not having God or a relationship with the Lord, that was a very difficult thing for me as a kid, right? But something that as a kid, I would just try to pack away and push away and all that stuff and no, not really think about it too much. 
But then as I grew up later in life, something very, very traumatic happened in my life. I was a joyful, goofy kid. I would like to think now I'm a joyful, goofy guy. My parents divorced. It was something that I never would have assumed or thought would happen in a million years. I had friends that came from single um, parent households. I never would have thought that my parents would go through that. The reason why that was extremely traumatic for me was there were so many other things going on in my life at the time with siblings and family that was kind of a disruption to the family unit. My older brothers had moved out of the house. I was this family-oriented guy. All of us were adopted, by the way, so that'll serve some kind of relevancy down the road. Growing up and realizing that you can love people that don't share the same blood type and background and all that, it's kind of like church, right? But growing up, though, I remember when my parents divorced, something in me broke. And this was something that was truly like a, a, a dynamic in my life that really changed everything. And I don't know how many of you in here have ever experienced this, but having something in your life take place where the world just seems a little bit more gray, a little bit more dim, and a little bit more dark. And this joyful little boy that used to think that the world was just amazing, questioned some stuff, but always tried to make people happy, always tried to make people laugh, he in essence died. And I just remember being welled up with depression and anger and anxiety and these emotions that I really just didn't know how to deal with as a young kid. I had a horrible relationship with my dad, horrible relationship. We did not get along. Um, that was something, once again, as I go down into this, you'll see that the Lord even reconciled with that. But we were always butting heads. And I'll never forget when my dad sat there and told my mom at the kitchen table that he was leaving because he was taking a job offer. For me as a young man, that had an effect on me. My dad was picking something in my eyes over his family. And in his brain, he was doing it for the family. But I remember my mom looking right at him square in the eye. She says, I'm not moving the kids away. We're not leaving. And my dad looked her right in the face, didn't miss a beat. And guess what he said? I'm still going. Ends up getting involved in a relationship with a woman. Find out that there was extramarital affairs and all that fun stuff. That's for a whole other story. But once again, what it did for me as a young man is I started to lose trust in this sense that this light that was in the world started to dim. And I could not understand how to deal with these emotions. Fast forward once again as all this is taking place, we leave Fort Wayne. My mom moves my younger brother, myself, up to Coldwater. Coldwater in 1998 for a 16-, 17-year-old boy growing up in the city. You want to talk about culture shock? <laughs> I mean, it was pickup trucks and all this stuff. Everything was behind, music was behind, style was behind, all that stuff. And I struggled. So take an angry boy already, and I wasn't doing anything right in Fort Wayne. I wasn't going to school. I was involved with certain things I shouldn't have been involved in, drugs and all that stuff. Take me out of that element, and I'm thankful looking back now that my mom did because two things would have happened. I either would have died or been in jail because I was not doing things properly there. But my mom knew she had to make a move. So she ends up getting a job at Lakeland Correctional Facility as an RN nurse. And I remember her telling me, she goes, we're moving to Coldwater. And I'm like, where's Coldwater? No idea where Coldwater is. She had family in Quincy. My dad had family in Hillsdale. There's only three towns I knew about in Michigan, Detroit, Hillsdale, and Quincy. That's it. I knew of Coldwater Lake, but didn't know that there was a town. My sister, my baby sister, had gotten involved in some issues, so she was in a group home in Leo, Indiana. She was stealing cars, 
tried to commit suicide. The family unit was fun, <laughs> right? It was great. So I'm trying to reconcile all this, and my mom has this mindset like, we're going to move away and we're going to start anew. And I can tell you as a pastor now how many people I deal with that come up to me and they go, I just feel like I need a new location. I need a fresh start. And I always tell them, listen, if you take the doo-doo and the muck that's in your heart to a different location, you're going to have the same stuff happen, right? So this was something for me that as I move as a young man with this anger, this anxiety, I wanted to live a life to show people how angry and how mad I was at the world. So I was rebellious, getting involved in relationships I had no business getting involved in, right? Like just going just wild in essence, doing things that my mom just looked at me. And once again, as a, as a parent now, for her to look at her boy that she once saw that was joyful and happy living in the way that he was living, it broke her heart, right? And she owned that. She owned it. I remember, I remember her crying on her couch, saying the words like, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? What's happened? And literally just feeling like I was broken. Like I, once again, in essence, died. From that came emotions that led to suicidal thoughts. Even at one point, an attempt on my life. Right? And I won't go into details with that, but I understood the darkness of depression. That once again, God would redeem later in my life to be able to use with people as a pastor. And depression is this. This is the bare bones of it, right? You can't let go of yesterday and you're terrified about tomorrow, so today has no value to it. That is depression. That is this spiritual just darkening over your life. I couldn't let go of the things that happened in my past and I didn't know how I was going to deal with tomorrow. So guess what? Today's a free-for-all. And I remember that experience in my life. And I sit there and I remember even thinking too, like what could possibly become of any of this? It was around that time that my brother Ryan passed away in 2002, but in February of the previous year, my best friend that I grew up with since the second grade, he was an alcoholic at 16 years old. At 21 years old, he took his life at a party and shot himself in the mouth. The night, before I, that, the night before that happened, I remember him and I speaking. We hadn't spoke for over a year. And we got to tell each other for the first time and sadly the last time that we loved each other. So this little boy, broken, going through all of this stuff, terrified of death, all of a sudden death is now happening, right? It was soon after my brother passed away in 2002. I lost my best friend in 2001 that the only grandma that I knew, she was this kind of comfort for me when I moved up to Coldwater. I would sneak away from the alternative high school that my mom sent me to because I couldn't go to the regular high school. We got to smoke cigarettes on break and all that fun stuff. It was, it was fantastic. Great. I learned what a marble was because we didn't smoke those in Fort Wayne. So I remember a kid coming up to me going, you want a red? And I go, what's a red? It's a Marlboro. I'm like, I, we, we smoke Newports and Kings. We didn't, we, didn't do, we didn't do Marlboros. So anyways, after that was said and done, I would sneak off though and go to my grandma's house. She used to live at Inglewood Apartments. And I, I'll never forget, I would go up to the door all the time, push the button, she'd let me in. She was always watching game shows, drinking a Diet Coke, smoking a cigarette. And she'd let me smoke with her. 
right? And I was young at the time when this was taking place. But I'll never forget the comfort that my grandma would give me in the midst of me kind of dumping on her and telling her how my life was as a 16, 17-year-old kid at the time. She would look at me and just take a drag off her cigarette and go, you worry too much about stuff. You don't need to worry so much. Like this wisdom that she would give me as this old woman, right? I'll never forget, though, when she passed away. It was a freak accident. She was moving out of Inglewood. She was actually supposed to be moving in with my aunt. And she fell down some stairs, broke some ribs, and she passed away. So these three deaths took place in a very, very short amount of time. And to go back to my brother Ryan, the, 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 the issue with that, or not the issue, but the significance of his death was watching a loved one die slow. Like cystic fibrosis, it takes over your body. I mean, watching a loved one, your essence, a best friend of mine, right? Slowly suffocate. And I'll never forget going to Cleveland, Ohio to say goodbye to him. I remember walking in the, the room and I remember this young nurse who was Ryan's age, 25, 26 years old, standing there. And she broke down and started crying. And my mom was a nurse, a seasoned nurse. And the, the nurse just kept apologizing to my, my mom and dad. Sorry for crying because she wasn't being professional. My mom just looked at her and said, baby, it's okay. This is hard. And I'll never forget looking at my brother, right? The nurse is putting a popsicle in his mouth to keep his mouth moist. He's dying. And all the memories that you have of, of life with him are flooding over you. You're watching your brother slowly die. And I remember at that time just watching him thinking to myself, like it wasn't an anger, it was more of a question. And then there was even a thought of my own life. And for the first time in my life, there was something beautiful that actually started to spawn in my brain about life that came from death. I started to think about my own existence. Like I started to actually stop and think about my life because this brother that I knew, this best friend that I grew up with, this grandma that I loved, were gone. And I couldn't imagine life without him, but guess what? Everyone dies one day. No matter how much you love them, they're gonna go. One way or the other, right? We could, you could, and I asked my church this, and they're gonna laugh. If anyone wants to argue with me about the death rate per person, it's one. If you want to debate me on that, you can see me afterwards, right? It just happens. So this beauty came from these things taking place in my life, but I still wasn't in this place when it came to a relationship with the Lord and all that stuff. I wasn't there. I wasn't on, on the God stuff yet. But man, I was really starting to think about life in a way that I never had. And that's something that, in a sense, tragedy and hurt brought about. So from that, this anger and all this stuff that I had welled up in me, I actually used it for something. I used it in fitness. You want to get a good body and get in great shape? Get bitter and angry. It's a great pre-workout. <laughs> oh, it's phenomenal, right? You think you're working something out when you're in the gym because you can't control what's on the inside. You become obsessed with trying to portray something on the outside. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because we all can do that in other ways. Outwardly, we try to appear that we're one way, but inwardly, it's not good. And we can do a good job at that even in the church. Trust me, I see it. I see people that think because they're a Christian, outwardly, they always have to be on. But inwardly, there's a struggle and a burden that's taking place. 
So with that though, my wife made me, she said, you have to bring this up because I don't think you ever talk about it. And I said, I don't go around and just tell people that I went to New York City and I was a fitness model and I was in magazines and all that. There, I got it out indirectly. <laughs> and I recorded it. She, yeah, that, yeah. And it's funny because my wife, yeah. Well, my wife actually has a drawer with, no. That's not, that, she's gonna know who said that too. My wife actually has like magazines that I was in, in a drawer, and it's funny because it's a life that I don't regret. You know why? Because it's put me where I'm at today. I, I can't look back as a Christian and go, I regret this. Because that would be me then saying, God, I don't agree with what you did to put me where I'm at. But my wife will sit there and make jokes about it. But then when people come over, she breaks the magazine. Did you know he was a fitness model? Look, look at these pictures. I'm like, babe, like, she said to bring that up, so I brought it up. But the reason why I bring that up, though, is something important happened during that time. And this is how our Father in Heaven works. It was during that time I remember sitting in a friend's house reading through the Bible. I was at a computer desk. Now, I don't have this amazing, like, mind-blowing testimony and how I came to see the Lord or have the Lord reveal himself to me. He revealed himself to me through his word. And I remember opening up the Bible and I remember reading without any idea of context or anything like that, just going through from Genesis to Revelation. It took me time, but I remember actually being in the book of Leviticus, right? 633 prohibitions and laws. It's a great read, <laughs> right? But seeing all these things, this description of the human heart as well, vile and wicked things that people do. And I couldn't help but think to myself, inwardly, I have these struggles. Inwardly, some of these things that are being mentioned, I, I deal with. Outwardly, I'm, I'm portraying myself as someone that's very well put together, right? Inwardly, a different story. And for the first time in my life, I thought if someone could see that side of me and know, know me in that way, if there's a God that can know me in that way and still love me, no one's going to be able to love me that way as well. So I remember for the first time seeing my sin. But in that seeing my sin, I saw God's holiness as well. And I remember being there in that room where I had been sitting for a while, opening up the Bible, opening up Scripture and reading it. And I remember just saying to the Lord, I don't know how this works. I don't understand how any of this works. But I believe that you're real. And I believe that you know me. And I want to know you. And I remember being there saying, Lord, I, I repent of the life that I've lived. The sin that's indwelling in me. I see it and I recognize it and I want to live a life for you. And this is in the midst of me being a fitness model, mind you. And I was good at it. I had people saying, hey, you should get a contract to go do this or go live there. Like the world stuff was there. It was intriguing. And I remember I was sitting in my best friend's or one of my good friend's backyard and I remember I was supposed to catch a flight to a photo shoot. And I remember sitting there and looking at a father show his son how to start a lawnmower. 
And I remember for the first time in my life, I saw something that I actually really wanted. It wasn't something that just came about to me. It was something that I actually desired. Like, it would be great to be a dad, to have a lawnmower, yeah. I love John. That's why he's sitting close, too, so he can say those little comments. But I just remember for the first time in my life just sitting there thinking, like, even though I have all this stuff that the world is throwing at me, it isn't bringing me any sense of contentment. And Lord, I just want to be obedient to you. And guess what? Here's me even being honest. My wife will smile at this. I knew that I also wanted to be married. I wanted to have a wife. I didn't know what that would look like. I completely yielded that to God. And boy, didn't he show up on that one. (laughs) And honestly, guys, I'll stand up here and tell you as well, my wife and I, we did not start out in the most biblical sense by any means. But I was able to, to, to meet a woman with four amazing kids, and I fell in love quick. One of those kids is here. And I knew it was a package deal. And I remember sitting on the bed with my wife after she had just gone through a divorce, and I remember her and I both crying over that. Because no one gets married to get divorced, right? I mean, if you did see me afterwards, we'll talk. But this was like serious stuff for me. And I remember sitting there at that time just thinking to myself, like, Lord, I know I want this, I know I want her, but I want to be who she needs me to be. And in the midst of all of this, another thing took place that God did in my life. He had me reconcile relationship with my father. And I'll never forget that. I remember calling my dad up. And I said, Dad, I love you. And I need you to forgive me for not being the son that I should have been. And I remember my dad telling me that he loved me. And my dad said, I need you to forgive me as well. Because here's the deal, church. We forgive much. Why? Because we've been forgiven much. We love much. Why? Because we've been loved much. And I knew that. The next day, the next night, I get a phone call. My dad is at that building over there. His sister Debbie and my uncle Tom used to own it. And he's sitting in that bar and he calls me drunk. Josh, I have stage four lung cancer. The very next day, so this is my Job moment, I start complaining to God. Like, I do this thing for you, right? You love me, I'm going to love. You've forgiven me, I'm going to forgive. And now this is going to happen with my dad. This is the first time I realized what true faith was. It wasn't a power, it wasn't a force, it was a trust in a holy God. And I remember just stopping and thinking, in the midst of my complaining, this overwhelming peace just rushing over me of trust in God. And my dad, for the next two years of his life and myself, had the most amazing relationship that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. 
I look at the relationship that I had with him for the last 24 months. I remember going to chemo treatments with him. I remember sitting there and I'd never been in a, a chemo. It's, it's kind of weird. Like people sit in like a circle in these loungers and all that. And I remember sitting there looking at a young lady that was like 11 or 12 years old and she's got this pretty blonde hair and all of a sudden she pulls her hair off and she's bald and she's laughing and smiling. And all this, remember the thinker, the kid, the one that's absorbing things, witnessing things, watching things. He's starting to kind of come back. Well, I'm thinking, going like, wait a minute, in the chaos of life, in the darkness of life, people still smile. There's still joy. It's not ha happiness is a fleeting emotion. Joy is constant. And I'm watching this young lady in the midst of cancer sit there and smile with needles in her arm. And my dad and I, I remember him, I'm telling him, like, Dad, I'm with this woman. She's got four kids. I don't know what I'm doing, but I love her and I love the kids. And for the first time in my life, my dad looked me in the face and he said, I never said this to you and I didn't say it enough, but I'm proud of you. And if there's any one of my kids that can do this, it's you. You want to talk about a boost. I got it that day. My wife, she's a sweetheart. Like she, my dad just fell in love with her. I mean, it was, it was amazing from the jump. And when her and I got married, my dad was very sick, but he made a point to show up. And I'll never forget, like he couldn't walk down. My wife and I got married on the beach, barefoot wedding. Phenomenal. If you haven't tried to do it. My dad was sitting on this kind of rocking chair thing overlooking the beach. And I'll never forget standing there watching my bride walk down the aisle, but looking up and seeing my dad in the background. And he was sick. He was dying. And I was praying. I was praying for God to heal him. I'm like, I got a great relationship with my dad and all that stuff. And it was a month later he died. And I just remember even sitting there at his funeral, thanking the Lord for those two years that I had with him. I wasn't angry right? But still coming to this place of like, Lord, I am thinking about my days in ways that I never would because of these deaths that are being put around me, right? There's this beauty and this truth that came from it. So of course, fast forward, and I, I, my wife's like, don't just talk about how things were afterwards. And I think it's essential and it's important for me to even speak about even my growth after becoming a Christian, because it's been a fun one. And it still continues to be a fun one. And I say that sarcastically. No one's laughing. <laughs> Guys, being a Christian is difficult business, and I'm going to tell you why. When you're living blind in the world, for the world, in the flesh of things and all of that, you're just living to satisfy yourself. And there's usually not the greatest ramifications that come from that. But when you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and your sin all of a sudden starts to sound like rocks hitting a window. Galatians 5.19 says that there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. It wages war every day. And I say this to my church, and I'm going to say it to you guys. That's an amen or ouch moment. All of us in here battle. We battle because we understand and see our sin, we battle because we understand and see the temptation, but the beauty as a Christian is we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to run to in the midst of it. So my wife and I, as we progressed and, and grew and I get married and all of that, we start to 
just live a life, especially for me as a man and as a father and as a husband, I'm, I guess, just kind of navigating doing things the best that I know how, right? We're going to church and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys or I was one of those guys where she would want to be there early for the praise and worship. And I'm like, no, I just want to listen to the message. And my Bible would sit in one place and never move. But I remember just sitting there thinking, like, I just want to be to my wife what she's never had. I want to be different than her ex-husband. I want to be cool for all the kids. I just want to be that dad. I don't want to be like my dad. And some of us can fall victim to that, right? As long as we're not like this person, we're doing okay, right? And it was shown to me real quickly that God doesn't grade us on a curve. He desires our worship. So I remember there's a, a moment in our marriage where my wife and I were talking and my wife definitely has influenced me so much in my faith. Her love for the Lord is amazing. But I was failing as a man in leading my wife. Good husband, sure. I was a nice guy. Didn't argue with my wife. I was a peacekeeper. Anyone that knows Jelaine knows that Jelaine likes to, she's not hesitant to fight. It's funny, my agape people are laughing too. Like Jelaine, Jelaine's scrappy. That's right, Dawn. I'm not that guy, right? Like Jelaine, you're looking for a fight. You're not going to find it here. But I knew still that there was something lacking and something missing. And that component the Lord showed me was, was I'm not leading my wife well. I'm so concerned about her being happy that I'm not worshiping him. And for me to truly love my wife the way that she needs to be loved, I have to love him first. And that goes the same for all of our relationships, guys. You got to love God first to be who you need to be to the people that you care about in your life. And I put my wife on a pedestal. She's a beautiful woman. She can easily belong up there. But God is the one that I have to worship. And I remember I had this dream where my wife and I are on this airplane and the plane's going down. And there's one parachute. One parachute. And I remember looking at my wife saying what all husbands would say, right? I'll take the parachute, I'll wear it. My wife, me and my wife looked at me yelling in the dream. I remember it vividly because I woke up crying, not from her yelling, but because of what took place. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, she yelled at me and she says, no, I want it. Or she said that she wanted me to take it and she would not have a parachute. So I remember standing there on the plane and I looked at her and just to make her happy I jumped out of the plane with the parachute and I woke up crying I was so ple or so concerned on just being who my husband want or who my wife wanted that I wasn't being who she needed me to be I wasn't loving my wife as Christ loved the church I wasn't loving in a sacrificial sense biblically I wasn't loving in a burden-bearing capacity. That's who my wife needed. She might have wanted someone different. And that all started with me also getting in the Word and being intentional about my relationship with the Lord. And my wife started to see this shift and this change. And we go in and we plant a church. We've been pastoring now for seven years. 
And that's been interesting. And I say that with a smile because it's been amazingly fruitful and edifying, but I'm gonna be honest with you. In the beginning, I really had no idea what I was doing. I had this zeal and this want to just go out and proclaim the gospel and be misfits in the community and all that stuff. I wanted to show Christ to the broken and all of that. But God really started to work on our hearts. And as a pastor too, once again, you you have the, the privilege of officiating weddings, but you also have the responsibility and the burden of officiating funerals. And here I am again in these moments of mourning and death something that I was terrified of as a kid. And I'm in these situations and these positions that once again is just reminding me of a sovereign and holy God. That I have the privilege of sitting next to someone's bedside whose life has come to an end, who either is dying well Or they're having these regrets because they look back at their life and they come to this important truth that my dad came to. Remember, I told you, he left us. He looked back on his life and he said, it wasn't worth it. Don't do what I did, Josh. And guys, it's a powerful thing to be next to someone whose time has come to an end and they're starting to see the starting line of things at the finish line of their life. And what that does to me, how that ministers to my heart, is infectious with how I talk to people. Guys, our lives are fleeting. All of you in here can attest to that. Scripture screams that. Outwardly, we may be fading away, but inwardly, we're being renewed. Things start to drop, bones start to creak, all of that. Once again, we can argue about this. We can do all that. I tell people, you want to debate that, come and see me. Life is moving at a pace that you can't control. And these moments that once again as a kid that I thought were difficult was something that started to show as a value to me as an adult and as a Christian. But I realized even more so when it comes to being a pastor and all that, that my most important ministry was that at home. That my spiritual integrity had to be in check. And guys, it's great when you're at church and you're preaching and your kids are sitting up front. You can be saying all those things. They're going to be the ones that are going to check you to see if you're telling the truth. And I didn't want it to be where I'm telling these men that they got to act a certain way, be a certain way, be this to your wives and all that. But they're looking at their dad going, he doesn't do that at home. That was something that was always in my mind, and it still is. Men bear burdens for their family. Men are present with their families. And the men of our church know I probably pick on them, but I do it from a place of love because it's the same convictions that I have as well. So most importantly for me, the ministry that I have at home is the one that I focus on first. I want to make sure that what I am portraying at home to my wife and to my kids is something when they see me, they see a man that loves Jesus Christ. Guys, ministries can come and go. And we live in a time where ministries can be idolized. We can be over-churched and under-gospeled, as I like to say. I want my kids to come to love the Lord because they see my worship of the Lord. They see my wife's worship of the Lord, and they see his love of the gospel in our marriage. My wife and I don't have a perfect marriage. 
if you do come see me so I can get some advice because <laughs> but here's the deal our marriage displays forgiveness our marriage displays work our marriage displays burden bearing it has all those qualities if you will that kids need to see to show that two people truly love each other and our kids do see that mom and dad love the Lord first, which then makes them who they need to be to one another. So I want to kind of just wrap this up because once again, I, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to do my best to not give the exhaustive version. I think I did great because there's a lot more. My brain's like going, okay, I probably should share this, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> what I want to do though is hit on something and I did bring my Bible because I wanted to make sure that I read this to you guys. One of the things that I came to learn in my walk as a Christian and one of the things that I wanted to speak over this group because I think it's something that will definitely speak to the heart of someone if not a lot of people in here was you know I can come up here and I can give a story of all these things that have taken place in my life. Right? I can talk about all these bad things that I've done and all that, and there's power in that, guys. Once again, Scripture speaks and screams about it. There's power in our testimonies. But as I said to Katrina when she asked me about doing it, I said I always want to make sure that I have the opportunity, though, to say the gospel because it's the gospel that saves. It's not our testimonies. Our testimonies need to be infused. They soften hearts. They make people receptive because guess what? You guys can look at me and go, oh, him too? I thought I was the only one. Scripture says, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, it says that there's no test that you're going through that's uncommon to mankind, and God won't allow you to be tested past what you can bear. That's a sobering scripture because guess what? That tells me that what I'm struggling with and going through is not uncommon to everyone else around me. And there's a real enemy out there that wants you to believe and think that you're the only one going through something. And if he can keep a body divided, he's going to keep a body weak. We all struggle, right? But it is the essence of our sin that makes us deserving of judgment. My testimony could have been easy and quick. I was born of Adam. Done. And as I said to Katrina, I was saved from God. Jesus is coming back to judge by God it was through the blood of Jesus Christ that I've been redeemed and I was saved for God now my life belongs to him as it says in 2nd Corinthians since he died for all now all have to die for him we no longer live for ourselves we live for him so I just wanted to say or read this to you guys real quick because one of the things that the Lord really just impressed on me, especially over my time as a pastor and all of that is, is, is that we sometimes can believe in this gospel and thinking that there's something about us that God saw to send His only Son to die for us. This isn't a popular message with some. Okay, that There is some good inside of us that God saw to where he goes, I got to send my son to die for these people because inwardly they got something there. And this place is a burden on a lot of Christians. And I'm going to tell you why. 
If you stop and think that there was something about you inwardly that was good for Christ to come and die for you, you're putting a standard in which you think you indirectly have to live up to. And I'm going to tell you right now as a person that has talked to many people when I give this message, they are constantly living in this place of thinking that they're letting Christ down. They're not living up to the light in which he came to die for them in. Guys, that's not God's grace on your life. There was nothing you brought to the table in which God saw to send his only son to die for you. He so loved the world. That doesn't mean that he loved you so much. It means he loved you in a fashion and in a way that you and I are incapable of loving like. His back didn't need to be scratched for him to scratch yours, if you will. We live like this in our flesh. We live in this sense of condition when how we love people and how we are to people. But I want to read to you guys out of Zechariah because this is important. And it's a story that you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with. It's Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What was Joshua's destination? What did I just read? Where was Joshua destined to go? The fire, right? This is that meaty theology that we need to understand. But he goes on. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off the filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, So I have taken away your sin, and I will put the fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The question that I have for you guys in reading this, how did Joshua come to God? What was his condition? I can hear it. You guys can speak up. He was dirty. He wasn't clean. When he took off the dirty clothes, was there clean underwear? Was he wearing clean socks? There was nothing clean about him. Where did his cleanliness come from? God. You and I guys are not righteous. We don't deserve the love that God has given us through the sacrifice of his son. Undeserving of it. We come to him dirty. Ephesians, dead in sins and transgressions. John, how much can a dead person do? Not a lot. If you battle with this sense of thinking that there's something inwardly about you that God saw to send his only son, the reason why I speak this is, is I want you guys to let go of that burden of feeling like you have to live up to some light. That's not God's grace in your life. I want you to see who he is truly in accordance to his word so you can experience and feel his grace in the way that you've never felt, a peace that you've never felt before. Understand how you approach him and understand how you've come to him. Dirty. 
And the only way that you've been made acceptable is through the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you. That is the gospel. That is the freeing message of what we preach and teach. Amen? Amen. So I just want to close in prayer. Once again, I'm proud of myself because I was told by Katrina it was cute. I go, so how long do I technically have? And she's like, some people have gone 10 minutes. You can go 20 to 40. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll go 40. And I was told that good preaching makes it sound like you actually went 20. But if you go really good, it'll feel like 10. I don't know if I did that. But I do appreciate you guys just allowing me to come in and share my story. Once again, I'm going to leave here and go, I should have shared that, should have said that, whatever. I pray and hope that it was edifying, that it spoke to someone's heart. So I just want to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you, Lord, um, with a newfound reverence of your name. Lord, of your grace and what you've done in our lives. An undeserving grace and mercy, Lord. And Lord, I I pray for myself and I, I pray for the individuals in this room as well that we just continue to seek you out in our day-to-day lives. That before our feet hit the floor, Lord, we just say to ourselves that today is a day that is being meant to be lived for you, not for us. That we're not called around or called to go walk around with our own ambitions and our own desires, but we are called to die to self every day to be able to show you to the world around us. Lord, your word says that the world will know who you are by our love for one another. So, Lord, I just pray that the people in this room that profess you to be Lord and Savior, that they love each other in a way that the world looks at and it seems foreign, but it seems enticing. Lord, allow them to just keep their focus on you. And as your word says, Lord, that None of us in creation will have a choice in professing your name as Lord and Savior because your word says that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every every tongue will profess your name. But we do have a choice on when. So Lord, your word says that every day is a day of salvation. Lord, if today is a day for someone in this room to see their sin, which means to see you, which means to see your grace, Allow today to be a day where they just truly repent. They turn away from the old life, the life of darkness and the life of sin, and they run to true life that's found in you, and true forgiveness, and true peace. Allow them to devote themselves to you and live for you in every day of their life. Lord, I just once again take this opportunity just to give you thanks for the life that you've given me. The black keys of life and the white keys, they all mesh together to make a beautiful song that you write. You interweave in your majesty and your glory and your sovereignty. You interweave the goodness with the badness for our good and your glory in the end. Lord, I just thank you for this time and this opportunity to be able to speak your word and to give you glory. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things and everyone says, Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.